Well, Pastor Walt, Pastor Raphael, they're on vacation. And so we have a guest speaker today. His name is Dr. Eric Smith, and he is the founder and president of the Pillar Seminary. He started the seminary with 15 years of active ministry experience and a Ph.D. from Trinity College in Bristol, England. Prior to the pillar, Eric taught as an Old Testament professor for Nebraska Christian College from 2006 to 2014. He has taught, uh, I'm sorry, he has publications on Job, Genesis 1 through 11, the Pentateuch, and a book called Jesus Prequel. Eric and his wife Becky and their four children live here in Omaha. And he has a heart for local churches and he wants to see them thrive. And here at Glad Tidings, we've been talking about the good news. We've been talking about the gospel and how it is good news for all people. And we've got to ask ourselves, what is the good news? The gospel is really so much bigger than what we think and sometimes how we approach it. And Eric's message today is something we need to hear. So we encourage you guys to listen and hear what the spirit is saying today through his merit, uh, through uh, his message. Please welcome Dr. Eric Smith this morning. Hey, thanks. It's fun to be here. At least the first two services were fun. So I don't know. We'll see how this one goes. But I'm expecting, you know, you guys to carry the reputation. Uh, I was asked to come in and talk about the gospel in an effort to sort of uh, expand our view of the gospel. And so it's kind of fun to be at a church, you know, called Glad Tidings, uh, talking about the Glad Tidings and what it is and how it works. And uh, so it's it's been a real privilege to be here. Uh, As Jason mentioned, I taught at Nebraska Christian College for eight years and Uh, I would regularly do a Gospels class when I was there, and I would often start class at the beginning of the semester by just simply asking the question, what is the Gospel? Uh, What what is the good news that that we're, you know, raving about the good news? What what is it? And uh, usually the answer I would get Uh, And it's not just at Nebraska Christian, even as I travel and consult with other churches and work with church staffs around the country and that kind of stuff, I keep asking the question, what's the gospel? And the most consistent answer I get, the overwhelming majority of the time, is something along the lines of, Jesus died for your sins, and if you have faith in him, uh, you can go to heaven. Like, he, he died to pay for your sins, you know, some variation of some variation of the Jesus died for your sins thing. Now, uh, don't get me wrong. Jesus paying the price for us to be able to have eternal life. That is good news. That it's awesome. Fantastic news, but it's not, it's not really the gospel. It's not the way scripture talks about the gospel. Uh, well, you know, how do you know that? How can, how can you say that's not the way Scripture talks about the gospel? Well, uh, let's take a, a, just a quick look at uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 14. I'll, I'll just read it to you. Uh, this is when Jesus is beginning his public ministry. After John was put in, into prison, Jesus went into Galilee 
proclaiming the gospel of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, think about that for a second. Jesus is just beginning his public ministry. Does it make any sense that he walks in saying, hey, guys, repent and believe that I died for your sins and that if you have faith in me, you can go to heaven. It makes no sense. He hasn't died yet. So what what is he on about when he says repent and believe the gospel, repent and believe the good news? And that's what we're going to try and get at today. And the reason I am so deeply passionate about this topic is I think most of us go through our lives believing in our core that we don't really have impact on the kingdom, that we don't really truly have a role in the gospel. And most of us, I think if we're honest with ourselves, struggle to believe that what we do day in and day out matters. And so I think if we can enlarge our view of the gospel and get a more robustly biblical view of the gospel, we will begin to see that what we do matters. But in order to get there, we need to take a quick tour through scripture. So when God creates, he creates a world that is good. And he creates a world where people have good relationship with each other. And people have good relationship with God. The horizontal relationships amongst people are good. The vertical relationships, people to God are good. And and when God gets everything put together, he looks at it and he says, oh, this is very good. But along the way, we decide that we know better. And you read about this in Genesis chapter 3. And you read this story where the woman takes the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and you read that and you're like, well, a fruit from the tree, knowledge, a tree of knowledge of good and evil. I mean, I have a plum tree in my yard, but what is a tree of knowledge of good and evil? And you're like, what on earth is going on in this passage? It's crazy weird, right? But what what's going on? is that that tree is us taking matters into our own hands. It's us believing that we know good and evil better than God. In other words, we know what's right. We know what's best. We know what's best for us. That's that's the tragedy of the garden. Is that you have a God who is the creator God who set everything up such that it would be good. And we look at God and say, well, thank you for the advice, but I've got this. And we go our own way because in our our core, we believe we know better than God. And that's what is being described in Genesis chapter 3. And it does not take long for the effects to to magnify such that by chapter 4, you have murder. And so this is is not good, is what... Is what we're getting at here. By the time you get to Genesis chapter 11, this is where the famous Tower of Babel story is. By the time you get to chapter 11, the world is at its lowest point in terms of its relationship with God. In fact, Genesis 11 describes a scenario that is 
basically the exact opposite of what people were given in Genesis chapter 1. In creation, when God was setting stuff up the way it should be, he gave people a very high calling. He said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over it. In other words, God is king, but he's setting up his world such that we are his viceroy and we go into the world extending his rule and his reign all over the world. That was our purpose. And it's a grand, majestic and mighty purpose. But by the time you get to Genesis 11, the people are gathering themselves together and saying, let's build a city with a tower so that we can make a name for ourselves. It's the opposite of what we were created to be and to do. And Genesis 11 represents the low point in humanity. This is the point where God has a decision where he is perfectly justified to call the whole thing off. He's perfectly justified to just end the earth and be done with it. He's perfectly justified to end it and start over. He's perfectly justified to just say, well, I don't care. Let them, let them run their thing, go their way, do their thing, and I'm, I'm out of here. But instead, what he does is he begins to work a plan of redemption. And by redemption, what I mean is he begins to work a plan to draw people back into relationship with himself. Okay? And so what he does, here, here's how he's going to do it. He, he reaches out to a guy named Abram. And he says, hey, go to the land I'll show you. And I'm going to do this amazing stuff through you. You get this list in Genesis 12. I am going to bless you. You are to be a blessing. If you ever wondered how God works to reach people, uh, that's it. That's the formula. And the formula hasn't changed. God draws people to himself. He pours out his blessing on them. They are to then in turn be a blessing to others. And that's how God's reputation gets spread. That's how people come to know of him. And that's what draws people into relationship with him. He started it in Genesis 12 with Abraham some 4,000 years ago. And it's still how he does it today. And so through the book of Genesis, you see the the working out of this. You know, Abraham doesn't really know how to pull this off at the beginning. And so he does some weird stuff that when you read it, you're like, I don't, I don't think that's biblical. (laughs) You know, you're like, it's just, it's strange, you know, but, but what you're seeing is the low, the low point of humanity being brought up and God beginning to work through it and God beginning to display his renown so that people will come to him. But by the time you get to the end of the book of Genesis, Abraham's descendants are now down in Egypt. And then we roll into the book of Exodus. And at the beginning of Exodus, uh, Abraham's descendants have, have multiplied. They've grown. There's a lot of them. But they're in slavery in Egypt. And when they're in slavery in Egypt, they're going to be wondering, is the God of our ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is he like done with us? Ha- has he abandoned us? Ha- Maybe he's just up in Canaan and we're down in Egypt and so we don't have access to him anymore. They're wondering these things, but they're crying out 
under the yoke of their slavery. And we're told that the Lord hears them and hears their cry for freedom. And so you get this amazing story of Moses and how God miraculously delivers the people from slavery. They leave Egypt, they get out into the wilderness, and they make their way to Mount Sinai. And it's at Mount Sinai uh, that we find them in Exodus chapter 19. And I want to read just a few verses from Exodus 19. And what I want you to listen for is uh, how similar what God says to the nation, how similar that is to what God said to Abraham. Because basically what you're going to see is what God wanted to do on the individual level with Abraham, he's now going to do on the national level or desire to do on the national level with Israel. This is Exodus 19. I'll start in verse 3. Then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you're to say to the house of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. In other words, you're already saved. You've already been delivered from slavery. You're free. You can go your own way. But if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, Then out of all nations, you'll be my treasured possession. All right, now pause for a second. Covenant is a word we don't use very much in everyday language. So what is this covenant thing? Uh, A covenant, uh, a, a more common word for it is treaty. The word that's used here is just the word that means treaty. And a treaty is the formalization of a relationship. We're used to thinking of treaties on... Uh, an international level, right? Two nations enter into a treaty. Well, what, what is a treaty? It's, it's got the terms of the relationship and how the relationship's going to work. And so what God is saying is, if you want to obey me fully and keep, and keep the treaty uh, that I'm going to offer to you, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So he's offering them this uh, opportunity to follow him and, uh, and represent him. But uh, that, that comes with some terms to the treaty. That's why we're going to get law next. Uh, but the offer is to be this treasured possession or uh, a kingdom of priests, or a holy nation. Holy nation is easy. It just means a set-apart nation, set apart to me. Kingdom of priests, you know, there's a couple ways you could take that analogy, but the basic idea is, again, tied to this thing where Israel is going to be the representative or the intermediary to the nations. Israel is supposed to bring God to the nations. And then it's this treasured possession thing that I want to talk about just for a second. Kings in the ancient Near East, if, a, if they were going to receive a foreign emissary or a foreign visitor, a foreign dignitary, they would set up their palace such that the emissary or, or this foreigner, the visitor, I guess is an easy way to say it, the visitor would have to walk down these hallways that uh, are lined with um, 
pictures of how awesome the king is, they would carve reliefs into the walls. You know, and the, the Assyrians were masters of this. And uh, so if you ever have the opportunity to go to the British Museum, maybe you, you, you've seen these things if you've been to the British Museum. All of these reliefs, these wall carvings that are showing how majestic and awesome the king is. And then there would be special display treasure that is kind of set out in a way to show off how mighty and awesome the king is. It's this idea of a display treasure that God is getting at in this offer in Exodus 19. He's saying, if you want to be my display treasure, that thing that I am going to set out and display to the world to demonstrate how utterly awesome and magnificent I am. You see, it's the same thing as you had with Abraham. God pulls people aside to himself. He says, I will be your God. You will be my people. And he blesses them and they are to be a blessing. And that prompts the question, who's your king? And you'll notice that when Israel was first set up, they weren't supposed to have a human king. They were supposed to have no king other than Yahweh, other than the Lord. Why? Because the idea is they will be representing God well. And so God will be blessing them, pouring out his blessing on them. And they will be doing so magnificently that all of the other nations will look and say, whoa, who's your king? And they would say, our king is Yahweh, the Lord, our God. This is how God had planned to reach the nations, to spread his renown or his reputation. And so he gives uh, some law in Exodus 20 to 23. We don't usually read the law thinking to ourselves, wow, that's magnificent. It's my favorite part of scripture. I love those slave laws in Exodus chapter 21. You know, that's, that's maybe not normal, but you've got to understand that for ancient Israel, this was a window into God's heart and what he cared about and how they could represent him. And so they treasured the law, at least when they were interested in keeping it. And in Exodus 24, then they ratify the covenant. They officially say, we're in. And then a very interesting thing happens in the book of Exodus. You get regulations for building a tent. Exodus uh, 25 and following is regulations for building a tent and then uh, them building the tent. And then the book of Exodus ends with the Lord taking up residence in that tent. This is Exodus chapter 40, verse 20, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent because the cloud had settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Do you you see this? We start at the beginning of the book with God's nowhere to be found. And we're being oppressed in slavery. Where is God? And we end with, oh, there's God. He's very tangibly in our midst. He's in the tent. In the right with us. The, the theme that I'm trying to draw out that I'm hoping that you see is that God desires relationship with us and he goes to great lengths 
to establish that. But there's a problem. And the problem is that God is holy. And so how does a holy God live in the midst of an unholy people? How does a God who by his very nature is driven away by our sin take up residence in a tent in the middle of sinful people? And that is the problem that is addressed in the book of Leviticus. And I realize that Leviticus is the book you read when you can't get to sleep, right? And you're like, oh, man, I can't get to sleep, so I'll I'll flip open Leviticus and I'll be out within a chapter at the most, you know? That's the norm. Uh, But what's super interesting is all of the scholars I personally know who have done uh, work, you know, whether it's writing a commentary or uh, just scholarly work on Leviticus. In other words, all the people I know who have spent serious effort understanding Leviticus, um, it's pretty universal that they'll talk about Leviticus as being one of the single most influential things on their faith. Isn't that weird? But the thing is, you can't, you can't study Leviticus without walking away with a deeper sense of God's holiness. When you dig into Leviticus, you see God as uh, different than us. You begin to see how extraordinary it is that he could live in our midst. You begin to see that he just operates so differently than us. And you begin to see the way our mess, our sin, our just being human, our, our just everything about us so creaturely and drives him away. We are so unholy. He is so holy. And the reason that becomes important is because the deeper and more profound your sense of God's holiness is, the more you will be able to appreciate what Jesus has done in cleansing us so that we might be near God. So you go after this sense of God's holiness because it helps you understand the great lengths to which he has gone so that he can be in relationship with people. The more I study the Old Testament, the more I'm in it, uh, the more I just see this overwhelmingly consistent picture of a gracious God who is desperate to be in relationship with people. So uh, when the people uh, of Israel, you know, pack up their bags and uh, uh, head off from Mount Sinai and begin to travel towards the land, uh, at first they reject entering the land. And so they have to wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. And that's in the book of Numbers. And then they get to a point where they're about to enter the land. And uh, Moses is going to give a series of speeches to the people. Moses is not able to enter the land, but the people are about to go into the land. And so Moses is going to kind of give them a pep talk, his final message to encourage them to follow hard after the Lord once he's gone and they have gone into the land. And that's the book of Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy gives us a window into God's heart and his cares and his concerns. But one thing that I want to point out 
is that uh, Deuteronomy also talks about how when the people abandon the Lord, if the people decide to abandon the Lord and follow after other gods, then they've got to realize that this deal that they've set up, this treaty, the covenant, is going to be off. Because, I mean, think about it. God is saying, I want you to be my representative. So, you know, you don't have to. You're out of slavery. Don't worry about it. But if you want to, I want you to be my representative, which means I will be your God, which means you shouldn't have any other gods ahead of me or, or beside me. Right. And and here's my heart. Here's the law. Here's an expression of what I care about. So live that out so that people can see what I value because you are my representative and that will draw people to me. And so it just kind of makes sense that God's going to say, look, if you decide to go after other gods, then it's going to mess up this deal and I'm going to have to kick you out of the land. And that's what God Uh, That's one of the things God says in Deuteronomy chapter seven. Okay, and do do you see how this makes good sense? It's not like God's just being a jerk, like a whiny jerk who says, oh, if you, you know, if you mess up a little bit, I'm just going to whack you. You know, it's not like that at all. It's I've set up this deal. I've set up this thing and my desire is relationship with the nations, with people. I want people to be drawn to me. But if you're not representing me and if you're following hard after other gods, then this whole thing isn't going to work. It's kind of like if you get a job at Pizza Hut and you show up to work on your first day in a Domino's outfit. Right? It, it, it doesn't work. Okay. And that, that's, that's what, that's what we're talking about. So. The book of Joshua, you get uh, uh, you get them entering the land. And then after the book of Joshua, the people are faithful during uh, the time of Joshua. But then the next book is the book of Judges. And the book of Judges is summarized with the line of, well, everyone just did whatever they thought was right. In other words, they're not (laughs) they're not following hard after the Lord. In fact, The statement at the beginning of the book of Judges is that the Israelites prostituted themselves out after other gods. And this is somewhere in about 1100 B.C. at the latest that they have abandoned the Lord and are following other gods. And so this promise that God has made that if they reject him and go after other gods, that they're going to get kicked out of the land. That. That should be 1100 B.C. But instead of just up and kicking them out of the land, what God does is he attempts to woo them back. He sends them uh, different people to try and get them to return to him. He sends judges in the book of Judges. He sends kings. He sends prophets. He sends all, all of these people that are just trying to woo the nation back into this deal. You see, they deserved to be kicked out of the land in 1100 BC. And it's not until 586 that God finally has had enough. And he, he raises up the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar marches into Jerusalem, destroys the city and destroys the temple 
and carries the people off into exile. For hundreds of years, God tried to avoid this scenario. But now the people have gone into exile. But here's the thing. Even the exile is an act of God's goodness. How so? Well, a couple of things. One, 586, Nebuchadnezzar destroys Jerusalem in the temple. 539, that's not a whole lot later. 539, Cyrus comes on the throne in Babylon and allows, uh, allows the people to return back to their land and even helps financially fund the rebuilding of the temple. So this thing that God's been promising all along, ever since the time of Moses, that if you reject me and follow hard after other gods, the deal's off and I'm kicking you out of the land. When God finally calls the deal off, it's not for very long before he's still wooing them and bringing them back into the land. Even this act of judgment, of kicking them out, was meant as a, as a cure to the main problem that ailed them. The main problem that they had was chasing after other gods. And this is the other point about the exile. The exile cured them of idolatry. You ever noticed that if you're reading the Old Testament, it's like they keep going after these other gods. What's the deal? And if you read the New Testament, you, you never see the Jewish people in the New Testament times going after other gods. And that, believe me, they have their issues, but it's not going after other gods. Why is that? It's because the exile cured them. You see, when you're in your own land and you're taking your worship of the Lord and you're mixing in a little worship of Baal and a little bit of Asherah and a little bit of Dagon and these different deities. It's like you're covering your bases. You're kind of forming this syncretistic thing. You're dabbling, in other words. But when they got carried into exile, it was a full-blown exposure to an idolatrous system. And it, it cleansed them of idolatry. The best example I've ever been able to come up with it... Uh, Best example I've ever been able to come up with for this uh, is from when I was a kid, elementary age. And I had an uncle who um, lived out on a, on a reservoir in Indiana. He actually ran the park. And uh, so he was like, he, w- he was a manly man. He was kind of a stud and, and uh, he, he was, you know, very handy and <laughs> uh, like, He's basically everything I'm not. Um, but as a kid, as a kid, I was like, man, I want to be like Uncle Harlan. And so he did chewing tobacco. And so I was like, I, I want to try chewing tobacco because, you know, real men can spit, right? So, so I was like, I got to do chewing tobacco. Well, for whatever reason, my uncle was not uh, enthusiastic about me taking up chewing tobacco so um, what he did, as uh, actually a perfect plan, uh, is he took a giant wad of chewing tobacco and he shoved it in my lip and told me to enjoy. And, uh, well, you know, when I got done vomiting and, uh, and the headaches had subsided a little bit, yeah, I, I haven't had terrible interest in uh, chewing tobacco ever since. You know, and it's just that thing, right? It's like you, you just, you go all in and it, it has an effect. 
So that's what the exile did for the people, is it, it rid them of this issue of chasing after other gods. So even in this very traumatic event, God is still working with the people. Even in what looks as though God has rejected his people, he's actually working to bring them back into relationship with himself. Uh, but here's the thing. If you are in exile, all right, let's say that you live in ancient Israel at this time when the exile occurs, you're going to be struggling with two main things, okay? One is you're going to be wondering, has God abandoned us? You know, the temple was destroyed. He must have left it. He's ditched us. We're now in a land on our own. It's the same kind of thing as the beginning of Exodus. Maybe God has abandoned us. And the other thing you're going to be wrestling with is questioning whether or not God's powerful enough. Now, for us, we live in a monotheistic society, so this can be difficult to understand. But you've got to realize that ancient Israel was primarily polytheistic. Now, think about that for a second, because sometimes we get it in our heads. Oh, you know, the Israelites, of course, they were good monotheists. Wait a second. The Israelites were constantly chasing after other gods. Okay, you're not chasing after other gods if you think only one God exists. Okay, so they were not primarily monotheists. And so in the cultures of that time, you could tell who the most powerful God was by looking for who the most powerful nation was. So it's basically what God was trying to set up with Israel, right? I will bless you and you'll be so awesome that everyone's going to wonder who's your God. The problem is it happened with the Babylonians. The Babylonians were so strong and so powerful that they wiped out Jerusalem such that the exiles are wondering, is Marduk, the God of the Babylonians, more powerful than our God? So... God, and I think in his grace and his mercy, speaks into this situation and um, in, in several places in Scripture, in the Old Testament. But I want to look for a second at Isaiah chapter 40. All right. Isaiah chapter 40. So imagine you're in exile and you're wondering if God has abandoned you and you get this message. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Wait, maybe he hasn't abandoned us. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, and the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. In other words, no, God has not abandoned us. In fact, all of these barriers are going to be leveled so that the glory of the Lord can go forth and be revealed. That's the imagery with the rough places, plain and all that stuff. And why is this going to occur? Well, simply because God says so, right? That's how that ends. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God says so. All right. Wow. That's, this could be real comforting. 
Give me some more comfort, please. Oh, okay. Verse 6, a voice says, cry out. So I said, all right, what, what should I cry out? Here we go. Some comforting words. All people are like grass. And all human faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. Now, how is that, how is that comforting, right? Like you've just been told that you're like grass and you're just going to wither and fade. Yay, I'm going to wither and fade. Like, how, how is this comforting? Well, again, put yourself in the position of somebody who is in exile. You have captors. Your life is not your own. You are living under the will of someone else. And what God is doing is saying, <laughs> all people, even them, are like grass. And that stuff fades. But you know what's going to endure? There is something that will endure, yes, the word of the Lord. The word of our God endures forever. You see, when you are a captive, all people being like grass is, in fact, comforting. And that's what God's doing. All right. So we move on. And we're going to get to the gospel. Verse 9. You who bring good news. Oh, there it is. Now, again, think about it. This is Isaiah chapter 40, you know, we're in exile hundreds of years before Jesus ever even shows up. Do you really think that it's saying, you who bring this news about Jesus died for your sins, and if you have faith in him, you can go to heaven? That is not what this is talking about. What is it talking about? Well, let's read. You who bring the gospel to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring the gospel to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout Lift it up. Don't be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. Look, the Lord God comes with power and his arm rules for him. What's the gospel? The gospel at its core is anytime God shows up, it's any time when you are prompted to say, whoa, look, look. It's God. Here comes God in power. That's the gospel. It's bringing God. It's, it's God coming. It's God showing up. The, the Hebrew, if I were to translate really, really literally, it's this. Look, your God. Look, your God. That's the gospel. Now, go back to Mark chapter 1. And let's read this again, realizing that the gospel is God showing up, right? Look, here's God. All right. So again, Mark 1, 14, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Now listen to what he says. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the gospel. In other words, repent and believe that here is your God. You ever wonder why the religious leaders in the time of Jesus were so intent on getting him killed? It's because they understood that Jesus was claiming to be God. 
And I'm, I don't know if you knew this, but that's not a good move unless you're God <laughs> in the flesh, right? So you, you, I, I can empathize with the religious leaders because if one of you stood up and started saying, hey, guys, here's your God. Look at me. Here's your God. I, I, I'm not, I don't think I'd buy it. And that's what they're wrestling with, and that's what they're faced with. But God is showing up in the flesh. And Jesus says, the kingdom of God is near. And y'all, the kingdom of God is not, it's not just that place we go when we die, right? Like, why would Jesus say the kingdom of God has come near? It's here. Is he like saying, hey, buddy, you're going to die real soon. The kingdom of God's close. Like, no, that's not what he's saying. The kingdom of God is anywhere where God is being king. It's anywhere where the rule of God is actually happening. It's actually occurring. That's the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe that God is here. Look, your God. And then Jesus begins to do his ministry. And as he goes about his ministry, it's kingdom moment after kingdom moment after kingdom moment. And by kingdom moment, I mean it's story after story after story where God shows up and he works. And of course, wherever Jesus shows up, God is showing up. You see this, right? And so why did Jesus come? Again, I think the temptation is for us to say Jesus came So that he could die for our sins so that we could go to heaven. Yes, he died for our sins. Yes, we can go to heaven. And that's all awesome. But that's not why Jesus came. Jesus came to reveal God. And God so desperately desires relationship with people that he will go even, even to taking on flesh and taking the punishment of our sin on himself and going to a going to the cross and making a way for us to enter into relationship with him. Do you you see this? The cross is not the reason Jesus came. The cross is an outworking or a symptom of why Jesus came. God desires relationship with you and he has made a way. And just as in Leviticus... There were all of these regulations about how can a holy God live in the midst of an unholy people? How can we keep God's tent clean so that he can live in our midst? What does Jesus do? He comes and cleanses us with his blood so that we can be the tent. So that Jesus can create in us an environment where God can live in us via his spirit. We are the temple now think think about the heart of god there the heart of god all the way back from creation and then everything messes up and then god with abraham is like i want to bless you so you can be a blessing i want to be near you look build a tent i'll be in your midst and god's like man even a tent right in the midst of the people that's not good enough let me be in the people themselves And the only way that occurs is if there's a sacrifice sufficient to cleanse you. And Hebrews tells us, and Leviticus is just reflecting Leviticus, the blood of bulls and goats was never sufficient to cleanse the conscience. The blood of bulls and goats was sufficient to cleanse the tabernacle. 
But but when God wants to live in us, a greater sacrifice is required. And that's why he sends Jesus. So Jesus can cleanse us so that he can live in us because he wants to be with us. And the reality is that so many of us are going through our lives feeling like God is not near. He is not with us. And I have no real role in his kingdom or in his activities in the world today. And that's what we've got to fix right now. First thing. Uh, it's, it's pretty simple, actually. If, if you want to be near God, then be around his people. Uh, uh, think about, think about, uh, Psalm 84, for example, Psalm 84 is that one, uh, where you get uh, better is one day in his courts. And, uh, you know, that whole thing that was turned into a cheesy song in the eighties, you know what I'm talking about? Right. I, 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 yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry. You'll have it stuck in your head the rest of the day if you know that tune, but but like the whole, the psalmist is crying out about how he wants to be near the Lord. And so he's like, better is one day in your courts near your house, right? Than thousands anywhere else. Think about the expression there. This longing to be near God's house so that you can be near the presence of God. Well, where's God's house now? It's his people so if you want to be near God, then draw near his people. And this is why community is so important. And this is why uh, the author of Hebrews, after he reflects on everything Jesus did in cleansing us, and after he says the blood of bulls and goats wasn't sufficient to cleanse us, but Jesus' blood is, then he says, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. It's this coming together where you're drawing near the temple of God. And this is why corporate expressions are so important. Uh, our church, uh, where my home church, uh, which is uh, Waypoint here in town, um, they do a, a discipleship school. And this thing is kind of intense. It's like, these people are together six hours or something or more a week for nine months. And you sign up for this thing and it's like, wow, we're doing it. You know, like three hours on Monday, three hours on Thursday for nine months. And then they all go on a missions trip together, you know, and then basically live together for two weeks. And so the thing is, you, you know, it's, it's hardcore is what I'm trying to say. So it's super interesting to me to listen to them talk after the experience. And there are two themes I always hear. One is, we, uh, man, I formed great friendships. We had awesome community. And the other thing I hear is, oh, man, God met with us. God, God, God was there. God worked through us. Y'all, it's no coincidence. Those two things go together. If you want to sense and know the presence of God in your life, then you have to be around the temple. And that's God's people. It's as simple as that. All right. But let's let's also talk about this thing where where we have this lurking suspicion that what we do doesn't matter. I mean, of course, what the pastor does matters, right? Because he's you know, he's doing kingdom of work, kingdom of God work. But, you know, I'm going to my job. 
and uh, my 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 current job is uh, uh, president of Pillar Seminary, and so um, I have some fundraising responsibilities, and that means that I spend time with really high capacity, uh, amazing business people. And these are the kind of people that you'd very easily look at and say, oh, they're doing significant work. I mean, they're the leaders in our community. They're awesome. If anything should feel like, wow, that, that's significant. I should get up with a spring in my step. It's these people. And the number of times I sit across from someone and what I hear is, well, I'm, I'm, try, I'm, I'm trying to do good work. I'm trying to live out my faith. But, you know, it's, it's really, it's kind of useless. And it's not, it's not kingdom work, you know. I, I thought about becoming a pastor. I've heard that one a lot. I thought about becoming a pastor and, you know. And it's like this lament about how irrelevant their work is. This is why we've got to understand the gospel and the kingdom. The kingdom is God's rule, reign, or authority. And the gospel is, is anywhere where God shows up. Okay, so think about it. If you take the time to pray over a decision, let's say you've got a business decision and you're like, you're a salesman and you're doing a bid for someone and you're thinking, well, I don't know, should I bid this at $348 or $352? And you, you know, and you think to yourself, what an utterly meaningless like way to spend my day. But what if you pause and you pray and you're like, Lord, please give me wisdom in this scenario. Lord, your will be done. Well, then all of a sudden, you're, you're allowing yourself to be led by the Spirit as best you understand His promptings. You're inviting God to have dominion in the situation. That's the kingdom of God. And let's be honest. If you are a follower of Christ, then God lives in you. When you walk into the room, it is a gospel moment. And it needs to be a gospel moment for everyone you come into contact with. And I'm not talking about walking in and going, hey, workplace, listen up. I got to tell you about Jesus, you know, and all you do is turn everyone off. I mean, look, if God calls you to do that, then by all means, be obedient. But the kingdom of God and the gospel is that we've got to infiltrate every corner of Omaha, asking God to work through us, have his way in us. Following him and his rule because that brings the kingdom. And my very presence brings the gospel. And yeah, bring it on. You know, like I, I know that our pastors in the city, including Walt, are desperate to see a movement of God in this city. And I am absolutely convinced with everything in me that until we all get a sense that every time I follow the will of the Lord, that is a kingdom moment. And every time I enter the room, that is a gospel moment. Until we begin to sense that in the core of our being, we will not see the movement in Omaha that we want to see. Because God, I believe, is ready to unleash if only we will realize that we are the conduit in every area of society we find ourselves. It's, uh, it's super awesome. That's, I mean, I don't know how to say it other than that. And my burden, my burden is that where, whatever you do and wherever you find yourself, that, that you will have a sense that inviting God to have, to, to rule, right? 
to have dominion. That's kingdom of God. And, and the gospel is God showing up. And you have that opportunity. So he has blessed you. Be a blessing wherever you are. Okay? That's the gospel going out beyond the walls of this building. And that's how it occurs. Okay? Now, I'm going to finish with this. I realize that some of you right now, you're just beat down and broken. And you're not ready to, like, take the mantle of, of, of charging hard with the gospel in, into your wherever you operate. You're beat down and you're struggling. So let's talk about the resurrection. And what the resurrection means. For the entire history of people, we have been struggling with how to cheat death. And we've never been able to pull it off. Uh, for, for my PhD work, I did extensive work in a text that is 4,000 years old where people are wrestling with how to have eternal life and how to cheat death. This has been a perpetual struggle for as long as we've been around. And we have not been able to conquer this struggle against death. But Jesus was able. The resurrection says, I've got this. The resurrection is God's way of saying, no matter what is going on in your life right now, I've got this. I've got this. Because if Jesus can conquer death, then certainly he can conquer whatever you may face today. So let me pray. Lord, uh, thank you for this church and their commitment to being a light. Uh, in the city, I thank you for their um, their work in in spreading the, the the glad tidings, the good news, your gospel, Lord. Uh, I thank you for our leaders, our pastors, uh, staff, and our elders, and and those that are just committed to seeing your gospel and your kingdom go forth, Lord. I ask that. Um, that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I ask, Lord, that you would work in us to will and to act according to your, your good purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I wrote more on Jesus in uh, Jesus' prequel. It's kind of an Old Testament scholar being nerdy and and then pointing to stuff that's super cool about Jesus that you might not know if you don't know the Old Testament. They're out there. Uh, I think their list is 10 bucks. If you don't have 10 bucks, just take a five-finger discount as long as you'll read it. That's what I care about. And then I often get asked um, if we have resources at the seminary. And so one thing I'd point you to if, if, if you're interested in you know more bible stuff is the Pillar podcast that the Pillar Seminary does. Um, it's, it's, there it is. So, all right, Jason, you're up.